My name is Daniel Colon Ramos. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Cell Biology and Neuroscience at Yale University. And this is part two of a three-part lecture series. If you are looking at this image here of these transgenic nematodes and the embryos, and you're wondering how we're able to label individual cells in the context of the living animal, I encourage you to see our part one, where we explain that process. In this lecture, I'll be talking about some discoveries that we've made using those tools regarding the mechanisms of synaptic assembly and function. So my lab is interested in the cell biology of the synapse. And essentially, I will argue that synapses are keystone to the architecture of the nervous system, which is what underpin behaviors. And we've known that since we've known about the neuron doctrine, the idea that neurons are individual cells. The importance of the synapse is that when, where, and how synapses are formed establishes, establishes how the information flows through the circuit. So for instance, if you look at these neurons here, they're connecting specifically to these other neurons to establish the flow of information through, through specific cellular conduits. So we're interested in that cell biology. How is it that synapses are established during development and maintained during organismal growth to be able to sustain the neural architecture that underpins behaviors? And that's what I'll be talking about today. In the third part of, the, of this three-part lecture series, I'll be talking about how is it that synapses are modified by experience and behavior. To explain our interest, I'm going to use a quote from Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who's the scientist that established, established the neuron doctrine, where he called, this is the very first description of the synapse, he called synapses protoplasmic kisses that appear to constitute the final ecstasy of an epic love story. And as I explained in more detail in the first part of the lecture series, the importance of that quote, besides being a beautiful metaphor for the synapse, is that by using genetics and disrupting the processes that lead to the formation of the synapse, because the synapse actually constitute kind of much like a kiss in a, in a love story, it's like the final part of a series of events that have to happen correctly, the synapse constitute the last event or one of the last events in a series of developmental events that have to happen correctly. So if we can disrupt those events and then we can reconstruct them by probing the synapse, we can actually kind of stitch together the plot of the story. And that's what my lab does. And doing those type of studies, we have uh, had a number of contributions to understanding the, how synapses are built and maintained in the organism and looking at the cell biology of the synapse in the context of the behavior. The way that we do our studies, and I explained this in more detail in the first part, but very briefly, we can label single neurons in the context of the intact animal. So these are confocal micrographs that were taken in living animals, and they represent individual neurons. There are hundreds of other neurons you're not seeing there because we're not labeling them. We're using cell-specific promoters to label, in this case, the sensory cell called AFD. Now, these cells correspond to a circuit that is well understood that controls the behavior I'll be discussing in the third part of my talk, which is the thermotaxis behavior of the animal. For the purposes of today's talk, these promoters allow us to do cell biology in the context of the intact animal. For instance, we can look at individual synapses. The synaptic sites are constituted by presynaptic sites that are communicating with postsynaptic sites, and in the presynaptic sites, they can be very roughly divided into two areas, the synaptic vesicle clusters, and the active zones. We can label synaptic vesicle-associated proteins, which we're doing here with RAP3. So this neuron here is the same as this neuron here. I'm going to, essentially, for, as a point of reference, I'm going to use this dash box here, which is the same one 
as the dash box over there, and you can see there's a synaptic rich region that is forming in, in, that, in, in this neuron, and there are discrete clusters in the distal part of the neuron that corresponds to this region, but this part of the neuron doesn't have synapses, which you can see over there, it looks dark. So we can look at the specific distribution of presynaptic sites in the context of the neuron by looking at synaptic vesicle-associated proteins or by looking, for example, here at active zone proteins, and I want to draw your attention to the fact that these two patterns are very similar with each other. That's important for us because actually they represent one structure that is uh, being labeled with two different markers, but also it's important because the stereotypicity of the distribution of these synapses allows us to do forward genetic screens. My lab has developed over a, a dozen different cell biological markers that allow us to look at the cell biology of the neuron besides presynaptic sites. We can look at postsynaptic sites, mitochondria, etc. And we can do it in the context of all of these cells to understand how is it that the circuitry that underpins the behavior of thermotaxis that I'll be discussing in the third part, how is it that is established during development and maintained during the lifetime of the organism. So using these markers, we have made a number of contributions to the field. I'm going to be describing a few here and focusing mostly on concepts. So again, we have a stereotypical distribution of synapses in these neurons. We can do forward genetic screens and identify mutants like this one in which the distribution of synapses is affected. Once we know the identity of the gene, which I explained how we can do in the first part of the lecture, we can establish where is it that this gene is expressed to be able to specify the distribution of the synapses. And stitching together a plot using those tools, we were able to determine that the correct formation of the presynaptic side, like you're seeing in this wild-type animal, is instructed by a glia cell. A glia cell is acting as a guidepost cell, telling the neuron where to form the synapses. And it does so through the secretion of a ligand called natrine. This is a ligand that was known in neuroscience. It's very important, particularly in its role of axon guidance. And we discovered that it's actually important for presynaptic assembly as well. And in presynaptic assembly, what it's doing, similar to axon guidance, is that it's organizing the cytoskeleton by interacting with the natrine receptor, which in vertebrates is known as TCC, in C. elegans in song 40, and activating a signal transduction cascade that culminates in the clustering of presynaptic actin and the clustering of synaptic vesicles at the correct site. If you disrupt any of these steps in a single neuron, it has behavioral consequences in thermotaxis behavior, which we'll be discussing in more detail in the third part of the lecture. The main concept that falls out of these studies, besides the specific uh, molecular pathways that I'm presenting here, is the fact that in vivo, glia cells are important for specifying synaptic positions. So um, it's, it's generally thought that or it's known that synapses are formed between presynaptic sites and postsynaptic sites, and that had led to the general idea that synaptic positions are specified through that, through that talk between the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron. But our, our in vivo work suggests that it's actually, there's, at least for certain synapses, there are guidepost tissues like glia cells that are specifying, talking both to the presynaptic cell and the postsynaptic cell where the synapses are, are going to be established. Through forward genetic screens similar to the ones that I just described, we did a second study where we analyzed how is it that synaptic positions are maintained during the lifetime of the organism. And again, through unbiased forward genetic screens, we ended up identifying another role for glia, but this time in maintaining synaptic positions, what we called the maintenance of synaptic allometry, meaning that organisms, after these synaptic positions are established, they grow, and the tissues don't grow proportionally. 
So how is it that the synaptic positions are correctly maintained as the animals are growing and different tissues are growing disproportionately? So as I mentioned, glia play an important role, again, in maintaining this, the synaptic allometry of the, of the organism during growth, but it does so through a different molecular pathway that it uses in development. It does so through a novel transporter that we identified called CIMA1 and the FGF receptor. And I'm briefly summarizing this work to underscore the fact that doing this type of studies, my lab has been able to make some uh, conceptual contributions to the field. In this case, when you take this body of work together, so the concept that falls out of it is that glia governs synaptic positions in living animals. It does so during early development, and it does so also during post-embryonic growth. But I'd like to underscore the fact that, in spite of the, uh, in spite of the fact that our contributions in these studies mostly focused around glia, we did not set to study glia at the beginning. We were essentially looking at the cell biology of the synapse, and in asking what is it that is important for the establishment, the correct establishment of the cell biology of the synapse, we ended up undercovering uh, important concepts of, or roles for the glia in, in, in governing the positions of synapses in vivo. And the reason that I underscore that is because today I'll be telling you about another story that is also a, at least to me, a surprising discovery regarding the role of glycolytic enzymes in supporting synaptic function during energy stress. And what I'd like to do today, this is this actually, uh, the, the story that I'll be discussing was published in 2016 in this paper. And what I'd like to do today is tell you the untold story. So if you read the paper and then watch this talk, you'll be able to see how is it that we underwent the process of discovery that is presented in the paper. But it's presented in the paper in a very different way. We, in the paper, we talk about the chronology of the biology. In this talk, I like to talk about the chronology of discovery so that you can have both sides of, the, of those stories and compare them, which I think will be very rich. Before I tell you about the chronology of discovery, let me tell you about the importance of the discovery. So neurons are polarized cells. You have the axons that are formed far away from the cell body. And synapses are the points of cellular communication, and that communication takes energy. So different synapses are firing, and it turns out that the different synapses are firing, meaning communicating, sending information, to different postsynaptic cells, but they don't do it at the same rate. It's not like all of these synapses are actually consuming the same amount of energy all the time. Some of them are more active than others, which I'm representing here with these red circles. And a fundamental question in biology is how is it that the, the bioenergetics, the, the energy budget of these synapses are actually maintained, particularly when the, the requirements of energy consumption vary in time and in space. It varies for the specific synapses and it varies depending how the synapse is being used in the circuit. And the discovery that we made regards a, a uh, metabolic subcompartment which is called the glycolytic metabolon, which is formed near synapses to meet local energy demands. And we find that glycolytic enzymes actually localize very dynamically to presynaptic sites to meet local energy demands. And the formation of this subcellular compartment, the relocalization of this glycolytic protein, is important for, su for sustaining synaptic activity, synaptic function, and the synaptic vesicle cycle. Now, this is, this is the contribution of our work to science. But these, these questions that we answered were not the questions that we set to answer in the first place. 
the questions that we said to answer in the first place was essentially understanding how the cell biology of the synapse is established and maintained during, during the organism's life. And we focus at that time in this neuron here, which is a serotonergic neuron. We're again imagining it using the techniques that I've described in, previous, in the previous part of my talk. And it's forming these beautiful structures here. So this, this neuron is secreting serotonin over the nerve ring. And we actually have a number of other studies that we have published where we look at how that, so that, that those structures are formed and how the synapses are formed. As part of trying to discover how those synapses are formed, which we're, ima we're imaging here, those, those um, dots correspond to clusters of synaptic vesicles, serotonergic synaptic vesicles, along the length of the neuride, which is the way that's, that synapses in C. elegans are formed and also in our central nervous system. So in order to discover how they're established, we do forward genetic screens, which I described in the first part of my talk. We mutagenize the animals, and then we're looking for mutants in which this is affected. Essentially, we want to go from a pattern where they look punctate to diffuse. And the reason we want to do this is because we know from our own studies and from studies done by other labs that when you get this diffuse pattern, this diffuse distribution of vesicles, you essentially have affected a fundamental aspect of how the synapse works or, or the cytoskeleton that holds the vesicles together. The work that I'm about to describe was done by a group of students and undergrads, which I'm presenting here. So these students were doing the forward genetic screens, and they identify a mutant that looked very promising. So this is, again, the wild-type pattern, the distribution. You get these beautiful clusters of presynaptic vesicles. They look like pears in a necklace. And then they identify a mutant that looks like this. So essentially, you can see that in, in this one, you can count the synaptic clusters but in this one, you can't. So it's diffusely distributed. And actually, we're overexposing this, 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 uh, this image so you can actually see the distribution of the, of the vesicles. And when the, when the students were characterizing this mutant, something, they noted something interesting that we did not understand at the time. So this is how we do our screens. We take a uh, slide and we put an agar pad, which is that circle, and then we put the worms on top of it, and then we put the cover sleep. And when the student imaged the synapses immediately after putting the cover sleep on, she noted that there was no change. Actually, the mutants look just like that, like the wild type. So there's no change between the wild type and the mutant that, that she identified. But then within a few minutes, within 10 minutes, she noted that the wild type continues to look wild type. It continues to look like this. But now, the mutant animals that were looking normal now look abnormal. They look like the phenotype I showed you earlier. So that, that's odd, because if, if this phenotype that we're seeing here was due to a developmental problem, something that happened in the biology of the animal before mounting the animal, we should have seen this phenotype since the beginning. We should not have seen the animals looking normal. And there was something else odd, which is that when she removed the cover sleep and then imaged the animals immediately after removing the cover sleep, they look wild type again. So it had something to do with putting the cover sleep there. And you know, when you do forward genetic, scre genetic screens, as I explained in, the in part one of my talk, sometimes you end up with weird mutants. So to be honest, at this point, I said, look, this is not the kind of mutant that we want. We want a mutant that affects the development of the synapse. So this is, this is not affecting the development of the synapse. And actually, we refocused our efforts in a different mutant that we have since published, and I'm not talking about here. So that was productive. But this one in particular, we thought it would be because it, it's very penetrant, meaning that the phenotype is very obvious, 
we thought it would be a good exercise for the undergrads to learn how to map, how to identify the genetic lesion. And to the credit of the undergrads, what they did is that just by doing curiosity-driven observations, they actually identified why, why we were getting this phenotype when we were mounting the animals. They observed that the animals that were near the edge of the slide were not getting the, or the cover slip, did not get the phenotype, while the ones that were in the middle tended to get the phenotype. And doing those type of observations, they hypothesized that maybe what was happening is that when we were mounting the animals, we were making them hypoxic. So to test if this was the case, then we, we used a, uh, essentially a, a reagent that, it, that glows when it's in a reduced environment, and it turns out that, anim that C. elegans, when you put them under the cover sleep, they're actually in a reduced environment because they have less oxygen. So that's why you see that halo there around the animal. And then we started doing kind of cute experiments inspired on this. So we said, well, wait a second, if that is the case, if this phenotype is emerging because the animals are in a hypoxic environment, then if we mount them in a slide that doesn't make them hypoxic, for example, in an oxygen permeable slide, then we shouldn't get the phenotype. So they did that experiment. They use a slide made out of PDMS. This is a silicon-based material that is oxygen permeable. It's similar to what is used for contact lenses. So if you're watching this video wearing contact lenses, that's why your eyes are not going hypoxic. And when you do that, the animals actually don't get the phenotype, so they look perfectly normal. But importantly, if we put the animals in a hypoxia chamber, which is a chamber that controls the oxygen levels, we actually can get the same phenotype as we get when we put the animals in the cover sleep. So this phenotype in these mutants is caused by hypoxia. But I want to emphasize, in the wild-type animal, it's not caused by hypoxia. So these animals are hypersensitized. They're sensitized to the hypoxic conditions. So what is the lesion in this mutant? So we did genetic mapping, which I explained in part one of my talk. And very briefly, for the genetic aficionados, we ended up uncovering that this is a lesion in a gene called phosphofructokinase 1. And we did that by showing that it fails to complement phosphofructokinase, that it phenocopies, that phosphofructokinase 1 mutants phenocopy the mutant that we have. And importantly, we can rescue the wild-type phenotype if we put a wild-type copy of the gene back into the animal. So what is phosphofructokinase 1? It's a enzyme that is very important for a process that, that is called glycolysis. It's a conserved process by which animals make metabolites and energy. And it's a multi-enzymatic reaction that you can see here. And if you're a geneticist and you find a lesion in phosphofructokinase 1 with a new phenotype, one of the first things that you want to figure out is, is this um, a new function for that protein? Or is this a function that is happening in, what, in, in, in the pathways where the protein normally acts, meaning is this, is this because of phosphofructokinase 1's functioning glycolysis, or is phosphofructokinase 1 doing something differently? And, and the way to answer that question is by looking at other enzymes that are also in the pathway and see if they phenocopy, meaning if you have mutants in these other enzymes, if phosphofructokinase 1 is affecting glycolysis and resulting in the phenotype, then when you get rid of these other enzymes also, you should get the same phenotype. So we did that experiment. So again, this is the wild-type animal. These are the mutants for phosphofructokinase. You can see that they're kind of fuzzy, and the vesicles are uh, diffusely distributed. So if you look at mutants that affect other glycolytic proteins, they, cannot, they look similar to this one. They don't look like the wild-type. So you can see that they're kind of also fuzzy, and there's like signaling between the vesicles here. So we, got, we have quantified that, uh, which is shown in this graph. 
But essentially, all the data that we have suggests that this is a phenotype that emerges when you have defects in glycolysis. So you affect phosphofructokinase or any glycolytic proteins, you get this problem with the synaptic vesicle clusters. Now, I would like to pause here one second and kind of own my own ignorance about glycolysis and talk about my assumptions at this point in the project because I think it's important for explaining the process of discovery and it's also important for, for explaining uh, the, the, essentially the, how the contributions that we ended up doing, making in the project. So glycolysis is a very ancient conserved pathways, one out of two main pathways that cells use in cellular respiration. There are more, but these are two of the main ones. So cells use mitochondria, which is dependent on oxygen and, and, and performs oxphos, or glycolysis, which can be anaerobic. It can also happen in the presence of oxygen, but it doesn't need oxygen to, for it to occur. And it's, glycolysis means the breakdown of sugars. This is the way by which cells break down glucose or sugars to make energy. So the, the reason that we're getting these, these phenotypes, the requirement of glycolysis um, at the synapse, I'll explain in one second, but when, when, when I was, when I was uh, faced with the fact that we're getting these phenotypes because of glycolysis, I was making a number of assumptions that made me less interested in the project, but they were wrong. And here are the assumptions that I was making. And I, I, I highlight them as an effort to, 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 as a teaching moment to talk about assumptions and the importance of not only, not only understanding what you don't know, but understanding the, the unknown unknowns, like what, what you don't know that you don't know. So I was thinking, well, this is not that interesting because it's an, it's an ATP everywhere. Like it's an ATP important for everything and essentially you affect ATP production through the glycolysis, you're gonna affect a bunch of stuff in the cell. And saying isn't ATP everywhere, it's like, it's like saying isn't money everywhere. Money is everywhere, but it's not everywhere, right? So if I owe you 20 bucks and I put it somewhere in downtown New York and I'm like, hey, just go and pick it up whenever you have time, you're not gonna find them. And the reason is because, you know, somebody else is gonna take them and use them. So ATP similarly, there's a lot of ATP in the cell and it's important for a lot of reactions, but free ATP is not everywhere. Like ATP is usually, uh, you stop when it's present in the cell. And that's why you need local production of ATP. That's what the mitochondria is thought that they travel all the way out in the nerites to the axons to be able to supply local ATP. The other assumption I was making was, isn't energy needed for everything? And that is, okay, so that is true at an extreme. And that is not that interesting. If you don't have any energy, you have a dead cell, fine. But what's interesting is, when you look at situations like the ones that the cell will encounter normally, in which it has to make, you know, energy, energy is, a, is a limited resource, and the cell has to make a decision about how it's gonna use that limited resource. So how is it that the cell decides which reactions it's gonna keep and which ones it's gonna let go when it's energy limited? That's, that's what's interesting. And here I wanna make a distinction between energy vulnerability or reactions that are um, that will stop working when the energy levels decrease and, and energy consumption. And I'll make an analogy by using again money. So for most people, their biggest expense is their house. So mortgage or rent, that's their biggest expense. But if you get a pay cut, the first thing that people will do is not move out of their house. They will try to get, they'll, get, they'll stop eating out or they'll cut out cable. But why, why do that? 
if the biggest expense is the house. So, and, and it's intuitive. Everyone will say, well, because there are things that are less important. So the cell, similarly, there, it has reactions that consume a lot of ATP, and it has reactions that are energy vulnerable, and those two are not the same thing. And the, the cell is also, I mean, it's, it's a rational being in that it's uh, bound by the laws of physics and evolution. So there have been a number of reactions that it lets go when the levels of, of energy comes down. So, and with that, I'd just like to emphasize different cellular processes are differentially vulnerable to ATP uh, levels or demands on ATP. So at the synapse, it turns out that the process that is most energy vulnerable, and I'm going to summarize a lot of our results here to move to the part that I think is more interesting. So the process that is most energy vulnerable is synaptic vesicle endocytosis. And the reason we're getting this phenotype here is because the synaptic vesicles, which actually you can see here, um, these are not individual synaptic vesicles, they're clusters of vesicles. But the reason you can see crisp clusters is because they're cycling. But if you have decreases in ATP level and endocytosis stops functioning, then the fluorophores that we put in the vesicles are going to now get stuck in the plasma membrane. And that's why you get that phenotype, because all the fluorophores are in the plasma membrane and they just kind of diffuse out. And we showed this in a number of ways, and I also like to acknowledge the fact that other groups like Troy Littletons and recently Tim Ryan has shown that synaptic vesicle endocytosis is one of the most energy vulnerable steps at the synapse. So we, we got similar results. Now, we decided to look more carefully at the glycolytic proteins. And frankly, at the end, you know, glycolysis and metabolism have a really long history. And I, I, I didn't know what else we could learn about it because glycolysis is biochemistry. This is actually Edward Buckner was the, the, the father of biochemistry. Louis Pasteur, which uh, analyzed fermentation, this, those are experiments that were not done over 100 years ago. It has a long, rich history that I don't have time to discuss here, but I just want to emphasize the fact that we've known about it for a long time. That's one of the reasons that I wasn't that interested on it when, when I started in this project. But it turns out that there's still a lot to be learned about it, particularly with modern techniques, which I'll be describing here. And this is, again, my, my spiel about checking your assumptions. So we decided to look at the subcellular localization of glycolytic proteins. Here's the pathway. Most of what we know about it is biochemical, but what about the cell biology? And it turns out that if you just look at the distribution, in this case of phosphofructokinase, in a neuron, you don't see anything interesting. You kind of, it's all over the place. It's diffusely localized in the cytosol. And that's how it's described in textbooks. However, if you energetically stress a neuron by either making it hypoxic, which what it will do is it will inhibit mitochondrial function, or by um, stimulating the neuron, which we can do with light using a compound called channelrhodopsin, this is the distribution of glycolytic proteins. So you can see that it, it goes from a diffuse pattern to a very punctate pattern in the cytosol. And it does that very fast. I'll show you some videos in a second. But so what, are, what are those dots? Where, where is it localizing? Where are these glycolytic proteins localizing? And it turns out that these glycolytic proteins are localizing to synapses. So this is a different neuron here. Uh, you're, you're seeing the, the pattern, this area here is synaptic and this area is asynaptic. When we energetically stress the cell, you can see that it's kind of, it's clustering in this region that is synaptic, not in the asynaptic region. And it co-localizes with this green marker, which is RAP3, which is our synaptic vesicle associated marker. You can see the co-localization here. Here we quantify it. This is the quantification of the co-localization over here and over here. So you can see that these, these proteins, these dots, correspond actually to synaptic regions. So these proteins are relocalizing from a diffuse localization in the cytosol to a cluster localization near presynaptic sites.
Now, this was hypothesized to happen about 40 years ago, but it had not been examined. Actually, some of the movies that I'm going to be showing you in a few slides, to my knowledge, are uh, the first or maybe the only movies of glycolytic proteins kind of relocalizing in neurons. So, most of the knowledge that was generated, this is a paper from 1978, came from biochemical studies because most of what we understood about glycolysis was from biochemistry. But here is the last paragraph of this paper uh, that is 40 years old. So, the results reported herein were obtained under conditions very different from those existing in vivo. Therefore, whether these enzymes are associated with the synaptosomal membranes in vivo remains to be determined. It is nevertheless intriguing to speculate that if the nerve endings glycolytic enzymes were particulate, they may be associated perhaps to provide glycolytic energy for secretion, which is exactly what we are seeing from our forward genetic screens and our cell biological studies. But again, this wasn't examined, and it wasn't examined because they didn't have the tools at the time. GFP was developed in the 90s, about 20 years after this paper was published. And by the time that GFP was developed, a lot of people had, like me, lost interest on glycolysis because they thought that most of these questions had been answered. When in reality, we understand very little about the cell biology of metabolism, particularly in neurons. And this is interesting because if you go back to that literature that is 40, 50 years old, you see that this was, there was a raging debate at the time about where glycolysis was occurring. How is it that it's happening? So they had all the biochemical components. They could measure the flux of metabolites. They, they, had, they knew the different enzymes. They knew the structures of the enzymes, but they didn't know where it was happening in cells. And cell biologists will, will say, look, they're diffusely localizing the cytosol, and some biochemists will argue that's not possible because the substrate of one enzyme is essentially the product of the enzyme that came upstream from it. So you, you, you need to have an assembly line to be able to have the flux that you're seeing, and, and the speed at which the flux is working is just too fast for these enzymes to be tumbling around the cytosol and, 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 and producing ATP. So there was a hypothesis at the field that glycolytic enzymes for lo form localized multi-enzyme complexes. Essentially, the, the idea was that there was kinetic optimization through the channeling of substrates between the different glycolytic enzymes. But again, this wasn't shown to... to like the, the, big end, the big debate at the time was, is this really happening? Is this happening in living cells? So they could show that biochemically these, these proteins could associate with each other, particularly in certain conditions and in certain uh, tissues. But is it hap really happening in living cells, and is it important? And that, that was an answer. There were whole Gordon conferences about this topic, and it just kind of, kind of ended in the 80s without an answer. So we decided to look at this. And here, I'm gonna, this is one animal where we are looking at phosphofructokinase, and here we're looking at GPD-3, which is another glycolytic enzyme. This is after energy stress, so all these glycolytic enzymes start being diffused. And you can see that they're perfectly colocalizing. That's why they look white. The, the two of them. Now, you can do this with different glycolytic enzymes. Here is another animal with phosphofructokinase, and the second one is here is, this is aldolase. And you can also see that there's perfect colocalization. So these enzymes actually seem not only to relocalize, but to localize together to the same spots, which I told you earlier that in neurons correspond to synaptic regions. So that, that's suggestive of them forming a complex, and we have, we're characterizing this by doing FRED and FLIM analysis, and our preliminary data actually suggest that they're coming together into a complex. So we decided to look at this dynamically, and to do so, we collaborated with Dirk Albrecht from WPI to build a microfluidic device that allows to very finely, instead of just putting the animals in a slide and, like, just putting a cover slip on top of them, we can actually very finely control the levels of oxygen that they see. I'd like to show you some of those movies, and as, as I told you, I believe these are the 
surprisingly to me, but these are some of the first movies of the dynamics, if not the first, the dynamics of glycolytic proteins in neurons. So this, uh, this is a cell body here. This is the neuroid. And we are expressing phosphofructokinase here. You're seeing two different animals. And in the, up, in the upper corner, you're going to be uh, seeing the time. And essentially, when we make the animals hypoxic, you're going to be seeing that it goes from a diffuse pattern to you're going to start seeing clusters there and over here. They're, they're relocalizing into, into, um, into clusters, as I, as I show you with the static pictures. So this is a dynamic process. We can actually make the clusters form and disappear, depending on the oxygen conditions that the animal is seen. And again, what's happening, what we're doing here is that we're energetically stressing the animals. Because by making the animals hypoxic, the mitochondria is incapable of sustaining the, the energetic needs of the animal. So it depends on the glycolysis. And that's when you see the glycolytic proteins kind of changing their distribution in the cell. There's going to be a, a green light that's going to come on here. Every time the green light comes on, this is going to play a few times. The animals are under hypoxic conditions. I want to draw your attention first to uh, this spot here. And then when we play it again, you can look anywhere you want in this cell. You're going to be seeing the same phenomenon. So the animals are now hypoxic. And you're going to start seeing in a second that it's going to start forming. There it is. It starts forming a puncta. Now, now it's normoxic, so the puncta went away. Now hypoxic. The puncta forms again. Then we turn the gas off, and the puncta is going to go away again. So now the movie is playing again. It's looping. Now you can look at this one or any of the other spots. You're going to see the same phenomenon, that when the animals are under hypoxic conditions, the puncta forms. When it's normoxic, it kind of disappears. So it disappeared. Hypoxic is forming again. And then it's going to go normoxic, and it's going to kind of disappear again. You see that. So I want to draw your attention to the fact that these puncta are forming based on, in this case, the presence of oxygen, which is energetically stressing the animal. But we can also do it if we inhibit mitochondrial function pharmacologically or if we stimulate the neurons. And the other thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that they're not only forming very dynamically, but they're forming in the same spots. And those spots correspond to synapses. The effects that we're seeing because of hypoxia are likely due to the fact that we're inhibiting the mitochondria because the mitochondria needs oxygen to be able to produce ATP. Now, if we affect the mitochondria genetically, these are different mutants that are affecting either mitochondrial localization or mitochondrial fission or different aspects of mitochondrial biology. First, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the, the clusters of phosphofructokinase and the other glycolytic enzymes that we have also probed form fine. So they don't need the mitochondria to be functioning for them to form. But more interestingly, if you actually quantify the formation of these clusters, you'll see that if you focus now on the wild type, we need to induce hypoxia in order for, this, for these clusters to form vigorously. But in these other mutants, the clusters are forming all the time, even before the animals encounter hypoxia, suggesting that these animals are under energy stress constitu constitutively, and also suggesting that there's an interplay between the formation of these glycolytic clusters or glycolytic complexes and the function of the mitochondria. And I find this very interesting for a number of reasons. One of them is that there are a number of tissues that do not have mitochondria. And actually, if you go back to the old literature, you'll see, particularly for red blood cells, that there's evidence that these glycolytic proteins are in complexes and compartmentalized in their formation of ATP. There are other tissues that haven't been examined that will be interesting to look at, like lens cells, for example. But even in neurons that are highly polarized uh, cells, 
when you look at the synapses and the distribution of the synapses and you score which ones have mitochondria, about 50% of them do not have mitochondria. So this raises an interesting point about how is it that those synapses are sustaining their energy needs. And we hypothesize that perhaps through the formation of complexes like the one I've been describing today, they, they might be sustaining energy needs in synapses that don't have mitochondria or in synapses that have mitochondria but are under energy stress in spite of the presence of the mitochondria. In particular, under conditions in which the mitochondria might be defective, which has been associated now with a number of neurological conditions. So with that, I'd like to summarize uh, the, what I think is the significance of our discovery. If you look at a textbook image of the synapse, you will see mitochondria out there. And of course, mitochondria is very important out in the synapse. It's thought to buffer calcium. It's also thought to be making ATP. But what's literally missing from that picture is glycolysis. Although we know that glycolysis is important, including aerobic glycolysis, for brain metabolism and function, and that it increases locally with neuronal activity. And we believe that here we have uncovered a critical role for glycolytic enzymes at presynaptic sites to meet in local energy demands. And I emphasize presynaptic sites because that's what we were looking at, but this actually, these clusters form in a number of other organisms and in a number of other tissues. There are, not, there are papers uh, by collaborators and colleagues that are coming out now showing that this is a, a conserved aspect of the uh, glycolytic uh, biology. And we're particularly excited to understand how is it that these clusters are forming. We have a collaboration in which we're looking at, at how they are coming together. And we have evidence that they're coming through uh, liquid phase transitions. We're characterizing that with modern biophysical methods. And also, what is the role in plasticity, like during neuronal function, as the different, as different synapses change their energy requirements? And in disease, like what happens when the mitochondria is not functioning properly at a synapse, what is the neuroprotective role of these, of these enzymes in, prevent, in, in, in allowing the synapse to continue to function during the organism's life? And uh, with that, I'd like to conclude by thanking the people that did the work. Here's a picture of the lab and the funding sources. Thank you.